Have you ever noticed in yourself a tendency as you read your Bible to identify yourself with the heroes? Uh, So when you read of David, you imagine you to be the one who is slinging the stone and and slaying the giant. You relate that to your life and you will take down the giants that are in your life. There's plenty of books out there that will teach just that very thing. Or perhaps uh, you see Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's speaking with God and he's receiving the commandments of God written with God's own finger on stone. And you imagine... You know, you identify with him, and you place yourself kind of in his shoes. That's kind of probably where you'd be, uh, certainly not with all the other Israelites at the bottom of the mountain. Well, in one sense, this is, I think, natural, and there's one sense in which it's probably good that we do that. In that, it is good to desire to be godly, uh, to emulate the best of God's people who've come before us and even now. But the fact is, none of these heroes are the hero in any of these stories, ultimately. Uh, That the best men and women of Scripture are ultimately testimonies to the power and the grace of God at work in them. Uh, In addition to that, many of these heroes serve as types pointing to the ultimate hero who would come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, their lives and their... Actions, their ministries, serve to instruct us about the Messiah who would come and do an even greater work and have an even greater ministry. So David, for example, we we know is a type of Christ. Jesus comes as the greater David, the greater king. So if we're reading the Bible rightly, I would submit to you that as we read of David and Goliath, we should not be identifying ourselves primarily with David slinging that stone at the giant, but rather we should see ourselves with the trembling Israelites on the sidelines, terrified at the presence of this giant, recognizing our need for an even greater David to come and save us from a much greater giant than Goliath, namely our sin and the judgment for sin that is coming upon us. Likewise, instead of viewing ourselves as Moses up on the mountain, you should identify yourself with the idolaters at the foot of the mountain who have already forsaken their covenant with God by building this golden calf and worshiping it. And therefore, as you read that, you should see also your need of the greater Moses to intercede on your behalf in an even greater way than Moses interceded for those Israelites. And so as we continue to go through the book of Luke in Luke chapter 22, which I'll invite you to turn there now, we come to Peter and his denial of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This is a passage that none of us want to identify with. However, the fact is we cannot too quickly distance ourselves from Peter in this passage. We must not dismiss his errors as if We would never do this. You must not dismiss his errors as if you share nothing in common with Peter at this particular point in his life. Once again, it's easy to want to identify with Peter in the highs of Peter's life. He was one of the twelve. Excellent. Uh, In fact, he was one of the, part of the inner circle of the twelve. Also great. He saw the transfigured Lord Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration. We're told in the book of Acts in chapter 5 
that as Peter walked by and his shadow cast upon people, people were healed. We see that Peter wrote a couple of books that are in the New Testament, Scripture, First and Second Peter, these wonderful letters that are written proclaiming the greatness of Christ and the salvation He has worked. We see in Acts that Peter preached and thousands of people came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Peter, he is your man. This is the Peter that you and I are gladly identify with. We like to be like him in these respects. And of course, we rejoice in these things that Peter did, that God did through Peter. But really, if we stop and think about it, it's actually very hard for us to identify with Peter in those things. You are not an apostle, therefore you do not have this gift of healing that Peter had that came with his apostleship. You will also likewise never write a book of scripture. You may never see thousands convert, much less as a result of your ministry. You will never be part of the inner twelve. Again, we rejoice in these things that Peter did, but it's hard to identify with this. However, there is a place in Peter's life where we all truly can identify with him, and that is in his failings, in his miserable failings. Moreover, it's actually important and necessary that we identify with Peter in his sin, in his weakness, in his failings, in order that we might understand our need for the grace of God, that we might understand our need for forgiveness, Another reason we must not distance ourselves quickly from the man that we are going to look at in these verses before us today. So if you're joining us and you're visiting here, uh, we are just working our way through the book of Luke. In God's providence, you have arrived as we are in chapter 22 and beginning in verse 54. And so I invite you to turn to those verses with me, and we're going to look at this together. Luke 22, verse 54, the Word of God says, Then they seized him, that's Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. If you would rightly understand the gospel and rightly rejoice in the grace of God, you must identify with Peter in this moment, in his sin and in his misery. And what I mean by that is you must understand something of your own sinful condition. And so as we go through this, I want you to 
see this, to see your own self in this. And the purpose ultimately is not so that we might just feel bad. We will talk about sin as we go through this. We'll be pointing this out, revealing our, your own sinfulness, our own sinfulness. It is not so that we would just all feel terrible, so that I might feel great about myself to make other people feel bad. It is so that ultimately we would see the greatness of God's grace that is given to those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the outcome here. But in order to do that, we must see much of ourselves in Peter in what we find here. So the first point of the outline, identify with Peter's sinful weakness. Of this passage, the reformer John Calvin says, Peter's fall, which is here related, is a bright mirror of our weakness. This narrative, therefore, which relates to a single individual, contains a doctrine which may be applied to the whole church and which indeed is highly useful. So we're reading an account about a particular man, Peter, and his weakness and his sin and his fall, but this is instructive for all of us. That's what he's saying there. So let's walk through this. Verses 54 and 55, they set up the scene for us. Jesus was seized. He was arrested. If you weren't with us last week, we covered this. Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas. He was arrested. And, uh, and here, Luke is relating where he's been seized. And he's led off to the high priest's house. Now, the high priest did not have final authority to just do with Jesus whatever he wanted. They were underneath the authority of the Romans. Nevertheless, they still had a certain amount of power. And we see as we will continue through this passion narrative of Jesus as he's on his way to the cross, that the high priest certainly had an ability to get the Romans to even do their bidding. Uh, so Pilate, to, to the point where Pilate even does what he's reluctant initially to do. He does not, he's not find Jesus guilty of anything worthy of death initially, but because of the pressure put upon him, he, he does go along and has Jesus crucified. So Jesus is brought to this house where, uh, we're going to look at next week, uh, we see the Sanhedrin, this council of Jews will gather and they will try him. Uh, it's a sham of a a trial. It's not a real trial. They just want to pronounce him guilty and they will do just that. Uh, But Peter says, or uh, the scriptures tell us here that Peter, as he's, as Jesus brought into this house, that Jesus, or Peter, sorry, followed at a distance. Followed at a distance. It's tempting to see this as a sign of what is to come, of this gradual falling away of Peter, this gradual slide into sin. He is starting to fade back. He's starting to keep his distance from Christ. He's not following too closely now. Cowardice is beginning to creep in. You remember, Peter was the one at the Last Supper just the evening before. This is the wee hours of the morning now. The previous evening at supper, I will die with you, Jesus, if necessary. He's declared this. They all did, all all of the disciples. Peter especially says this. Then we see them in the garden as Jesus was being arrested last week. Jesus takes out his, or Peter takes out his sword. He's prepared to fight in this moment. He has some measure of courage, though it's misguided. But he's ready to go down at that point. He's still feeling strong. But this begins to now slide. Cowardice begins to creep in. His strength is waning. There's a fire, we're told, that was lit in the courtyard for people to keep themselves warm. 
And Peter sits down among them. Mark and John in their Gospels tell us that Peter was likewise trying to warm himself by this fire. And this sets the stage of what comes. Verse 56, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. And so the light of this fire betrays Peter. This woman in the dark can see his face. She recognizes him. John in his gospel tells us that this woman was a doorkeeper. Interestingly, John's gospel tells us another disciple was in the courtyard as well. Almost certainly it was John himself who actually let Peter in. And he's the one who tells us this lady is the doorkeeper. It's not obvious why she makes this comment, what her intention was. Was she just stating a fact? Was she wanting him to be arrested as well? Was she wanting harm to come to him? Uh, It's not exactly clear. Peter himself may not have known, although it may have ended badly for him. No doubt fear gripped him. And so verse 57, But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Just consider that. That really gets to the heart of this denial, does it not? I do not know him. Not even just, look, I, yeah, I was with him for a bit. No, just I, I don't know him. Straight up denies even knowing Jesus. In verse 58, it continues a little later. Someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Second denial. When we look at the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark and John as well, they all relate this to us. It is clear that there are multiple people pointing out that Peter was among the disciples and knew the Lord Jesus. Here it is a man. He responds, man, I do not. Matthew and Mark mention a servant girl at this point. John simply says, they said to him. So there's multiple people here that are pointing out that Peter knows Jesus and was with him. And so he's responding to this group, and here he denies being one of them. That is, he's not one of the disciples. So I do not know him, he has said. I am not with him and with his people. These are, are very strong denials. In verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. So after an interval of about an hour, it says, after the second denial. If you read the other Gospels, they split up this account of Peter's denials. They insert in between uh, a little bit of the story about the trial of Jesus that's going on. And so, it's best to understand this, what Luke is giving us to us all here in, in one account without splitting it up. It, it happens over the course of the night. Uh, throughout the night, Luke here tells us there's at least an hour here, or roughly an hour between the second and third denial. And here the accuser recognizes that Peter is a Galilean. Matthew tells us it's because of Peter's voice, uh, because of his accent, Uh, He understands that this man was, in fact, a Galilean. So verse 60 continues, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Three denials, all before the rooster crowed. Matthew and Mark heighten this 
And they tell us that Peter was also invoking curses upon himself at this moment. This doesn't mean he's swearing. It means he is saying, if I am lying to you, may God curse me. This is how strong these denials get as this night builds, as he gets to this third occasion. He's invoking curses upon himself. May I be damned if I am lying to you. I do not know him. I am not with his people. I don't know what you are talking about. This is quite a fall. The man who said he would go with Jesus to death just a few hours before. The man who not long before was swinging swords trying to defend Jesus. Now here he is denying any and all association with Christ over the course of this night. I ask you, do you see yourself at all in this? Maybe you've never said the words, I do not know him. Perhaps it's never taken that form. But perhaps your silence has communicated this same sentiment. A time when it was right for you to speak up, to speak of Jesus, to declare the gospel to somebody, to speak of your loyalty and love for him because of what he has done for you, but you just let the moment pass in silence. Moreover, is it not true that you've denied your knowledge of Him with your sinful actions and your sinful thoughts on many occasions? Have you not resisted conviction in the midst of sin in order to continue with your sin for now? Notice a couple other things in this text. This was not just a momentary passing lapse for Peter. This was spread out over the course of the night. Again, this is more apparent in the other Gospels, but Luke does say this. There's an hour in between these second and third denials. There was time in here for conviction to set in, for Peter to listen to that, to hear that, to reset, if you will, to repent of this, to change course, to be strengthened through prayer and reestablish and say, no, no, I, I do know him. But he didn't. You might, you might think, I don't know. You might think, I would never have done that. Friend, I would beg you not to flatter yourself. For all he knew, he would die in this moment. We've been silent at much less of a threat. Moreover, we've sinned in all kinds of different ways. Have you not this week even put off dealing with a certain sin in your life? Sin you know is there. And you've just left it to the side. You'll deal with it another time. Also notice here that this sin happened when Peter was feeling strong. At least a few hours before he was feeling strong. He was announcing to Jesus that the words he said that he would betray him or that he would deny him would not come true. I will die with you. He's swinging a sword. This was all happening as he declared his strength and no doubt felt strength and meant what he said. Meant he, he did not think he would deny the Lord Jesus. And so let us take warning here 
The warning that Paul gives us, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a reason the Apostle Paul gives us that warning because we all are of like substance with Peter. We're not unlike him. Friends, God would have you know your sinful weakness. Peter's decline from confidence to being overtaken with temptation and denying the Lord and invoking a curse upon himself, that is not unique to him, this fall, this slide into sin. We are all sinners who cannot dig our way out of our sin, even when we try hard. I trust you know that, you've experienced that. Secondly, identify with Peter in his guilt. It is not simply that you've done wrong, but it is that your sins leave you guilty before God. It is one thing to admit, sure, I've done some wrong. It is another to truly know and grasp something of your guilt. Uh, as Peter denies the Lord the third time, immediately we're told this rooster crowed. And then it says in verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Just imagine this scene for a moment. They've come to the high priest's house. They are in the courtyard. I don't know how many people there are. There's some sort of crowd, evidently. There's numerous people. They've got a fire. They're warming themselves. Jesus, we're not sure where he is at this moment. He might have been outside with the guards being kept by them. He might have been in the house somewhere with a view to the courtyard. There's noise. There's activity happening. Evidently, there's roosters in the nearby vicinity who are going to crow. There's conversation going on. Peter's being accused. He's denying the Lord. And all of a sudden, this rooster crows. And with all the noise and all that's going on, Jesus and Peter lock eyes. One commentator said, No phrase in the Gospels is more charged with feeling than this. This word translated uh, looked, it says Jesus looked at Peter. It means to look intently. Uh, Earlier it's used of Jesus when he's talking with his opponents and he's about to rebuke them and correct them and he looked directly at them and he spoke clearly at them. To look intently. You don't know how long the eye contact looked or took. But this is that gaze that communicates everything you need to know. It's that gaze that says, I know exactly what's going on. You've had someone look at you that way, no doubt. And you just think, they know. (laughs) They know what I'm about. They can see right through me. That saying, we know that saying. That's what happens here, except... It's not just, I think they know. Jesus knows exactly what's in Peter. He knows what has gone on. He, he prophesied. He knew this would take place before it ever took place. They lock eyes, and then Peter remembered this prediction Jesus made. Verse 61, second part. After they, Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. This statement was made at the supper just the evening before this all occurred. 
A lot has happened since then. This maybe seemed like an eternity to Peter, but it is brought back to his mind just by the Lord Jesus making eye contact with him. Throughout the night, Peter has carried on in his sin. He has carried on in this spirit of denial, denying Jesus multiple times while time passed in between. But now he is busted and he knows it. His guilt is clearly before him. With a look, Jesus has exposed him and laid him bare. And Peter, as we'll get to in a moment, he weeps. He will weep. He knows the gig is up. He knows he is busted. And the reality is, we are all likewise exposed before the eyes of the Lord. You may carry on. You may live life as if God is not watching or doesn't know But the fact is, he does know all things. Job asked his friends this, Will it be well with you when God searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? The answer to both those questions is no. You say, it will not be well with you when God searches you out. You cannot deceive him. We can deceive one another. We can make ourselves look good to others. We can say the right things. But God looks through this and He knows. And actually, this is one of the functions of God's Word, the Scriptures, is to reveal to us what God already knows about us. To reveal to us what is inside. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is like a surgeon's scalpel that carefully divides the pieces, but not of our physical bodies, but of our thoughts and even our intentions. The Word of God reveals these things to us. And then it says, still in Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You must identify with Peter in his guilt, for like Peter, you are guilty before God. So we identify with his sinful weakness, but it is not just, well, sure. You know, nobody's perfect. Sure, I've sinned. You got me. No, we are guilty before God. There is nobody who does good, not one. Even if you think back to the flood in Genesis 6, chapter 6 through 8, after the flood, Noah and his family are left. They've been shown great mercy and grace from God, and yet God still makes this declaration that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In the Scriptures, we find the verdict placed over the soul and over the heart of every person. It is the verdict of guilty before God's eyes, before His holiness and His perfect justice. His law is the standard. We would make the worst of humanity the standard. We would make the Hitlers of the world the standard. And as long as I'm better than them, then I have a shot with God. But that is not the standard that God uses The Scriptures reveal very clearly to us it is God's law that is the standard. Moreover, He is looking at the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, not just our external actions. 
so that even things like anger and hatred of somebody is sin before God. Even lust is adultery of the heart, Jesus says. Coveting is sinfulness. Various other sinful desires. These things are not overlooked by God. We are exposed before the eyes of Him who sees all. And of course, not only have we done these things in our hearts and in our minds and our attitudes, but of course we've given expression to these things in actions and in our words. And so the fact is, this look that Jesus gives Peter is also aimed at you. The Lord knows nothing is hidden. Identify with Peter in his guilt. And thirdly, Identify with Peter in his repentance. After Peter remembered Jesus' prediction of his denials, uh, we are told in verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly. The word bitterly is used in a few places to describe uh, a severe ruler a ferocious, a ferocious lion's roar, and then here, this bitter weeping. It is an adjective trying to bring out the negative intensity of the noun that is described. This is no casual response from Peter. You see this. This is not an oh well. This is not a well, look, he knew I was going to do this, so evidently it can't be that bad. Am I really even responsible? That is not Peter's response here. Back in verses 31 and 32, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus had said that Satan desired to sift Peter and the apostles. And Jesus indicated that Peter would indeed fall, but he has said that his faith would not ultimately fail altogether because Jesus had prayed for Peter. Jesus was interceding for Peter. And then he says in verse 32, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So again, we talked back then about how this is referring to Peter's repentance. That Jesus knew that Peter would, would fall, he would sin, he would deny him these three times, but he would also turn from that. He would repent of that. There's a commentator named Robert Stein. He says of Peter's bitter weeping here in verse 62, he says, Luke expected his readers to see in this not just a remorse, but Peter's turning back to the Lord. I think he's right. This is a remorseful and repentant weeping from Peter. The next time we hear about Peter in Luke's Gospel is in chapter 24. He's gathered with the other disciples after Jesus has been crucified when they find news that the tomb has been empty and he races to find the tomb empty. This denial of Christ, as bad as it is, this was not the end for Peter. He was repentant. And again, we looked at a, a few weeks ago, mentioned there that um, Jesus would go on to formally restore uh, uh, Peter in John chapter 21. One of the appearances Jesus makes after his resurrection to his disciples, he, you remember on the beach there, he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And then he tells him to feed his sheep. And the three times mirrors the three denials. Peter was repentant. Repentance is a subject that many have a hard time with. 
Uh, I think it's in part because it is often a neglected subject, a neglected topic. In part because it's a bit combative. (laughs) At least it feels that way. If you have need to repent, that means there's a problem. Either a, a problem with your actions or your attitude or something that needs changing. Something that's not right. And it's uncomfortable to say that. And so there's a tendency to avoid that. Avoid the topic. That's just a fact. We see it everywhere. It can be a difficult topic then to understand even when we do think of it. What is repentance? Well, at its root, repentance is a change of one's mind and heart with regard to God and what He says. It is an agreement with God that what He says is right. That I am sinful. I am guilty and I deserve His judgment for my sins. As these are violations of His laws, the Almighty Creator, the One who establishes what is right and wrong. I have sinned against Him. I have shaken my fist at Him. I have neglected Him. I identify with Peter in these things. What's true of Peter is true of me. And from this change of heart, this change of mind, flows a change in our actions. Seeking to then put off sinful behaviors and sinful actions because there has been a change in the heart and a change in the mind about these very things. In his helpful book called What is the Gospel, Greg Gilbert writes this, Many Christians struggle hard with the idea of repentance because they somehow expect that if they genuinely repent, sin will go away and temptation will stop. When that doesn't happen, they fall into despair, questioning whether their faith in Jesus is real. It's true that when God regenerates us, He gives us power to fight against and overcome sin. But because we, we will continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified, hear this part, we have to remember that genuine repentance is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than it is a mere change of behavior. Do we hate sin and war against it, or do we cherish it and defend it? There's a vast difference between a change in behavior that is merely a change in behavior and a true repentance in which a person actually is grieved by that sin that they commit. And so just aside, one of the differences between a person's sin prior to converting and becoming a Christian and their sin after they become a Christian is their attitude toward it. There is an enjoyment of it, a happiness to do it, Um, prior to becoming a Christian, uh, no real care for what God thinks about this action. And afterwards, there is a grief about sin. There is a grievousness about the fact that I still sin. And even when we recognize that we don't grieve our sin as much as we should grieve our sin, we're grieved by that. Let me just illustrate again the difference between a real repentance and just external change of behavior. Imagine for a moment your spouse uh, has called you out on your hurtful words toward her or him. 
and you think about it and you think, well, they did things that made me react that way. It wasn't that harsh. They're pretty sensitive if that's really hurtful to them. They kind of deserved it. I kind of stand by what I had to say, but this always happens. They're sensitive. They get hurt by this, and I'm just tired of dealing with it. So, fine. I will stop saying these words for peace. I just want peace, so I will stop saying these words. At the end of the day, there is a change in action. No more of these hurtful words. But imagine that same situation, except when you're called out, you realize and know that your words were, in fact, hurtful to this person you're called to love. And, and, and that grieves you. And you realize, even if, even if they said something that kind of brought this out of me, I know that ultimately, that's not a loving way to respond. I need to own this these words that I've spoken that are harmful to this person, moreover, I'm grieved that I would hurt this person whom I love. And so there's then this resolve to not speak this way to this person you love because you know it's wrong and it grieves you that you would be in this fight with them and that you've used these words that hurt them. In both of these cases, there's an external change and a commitment to no longer use these words, but these are drastically different reasons for it. Only one of those is fitting with a real repentance. Friends, God is not after mere external changes. If this was the case, the Pharisees would be exalted in the Scriptures as being fantastic people worthy to be followed. We have a tendency to think God is concerned with some externals. Sure, I'm not perfect. I'll do some things. I'll offer a sacrifice. I'll give some money. I'll be baptized. Whatever. I'll, I'll show up to church. Maybe. Maybe. I'll show up off whatever it is. But again, Jesus has labored throughout even the Gospel of Luke. We've seen it, have we not, to show us that this attitude is a damning understanding of the Lord. The, the Pharisees... They're not condemned because they like doctrine. They're condemned because their doctrine is wrong and they are only trying to clean up on the outside. They are like whitewashed tombs. Have you seen whitewashed tombs? There are tombs that are big and impressive looking structures. And yet what's inside of that tomb? Dead bones. Jesus says that's what these Pharisees are. You want to just clean up some externals without dealing with the heart issue you're a whitewashed tomb. Or another analogy he gives in talking to the Pharisees, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside is still filthy from whatever beverage was in there last. I said repentance is an often neglected subject. It is often neglected when it comes to talking about the appropriate response to the gospel. If you're hearing someone preach the gospel, listen for repentance. If you're reading something that's talking about the gospel, watch for repentance. Someone may get the death of Christ, right? His burial, his resurrection, that his death is a substitution for sinners. They might get his resurrection right, but then watch or listen when they get to the appropriate response to what Jesus has done. 
And often that's where it'll go off the rails. And you'll hear all kinds of statements about how we should respond that the Bible says nothing about. And very, very frequently, repentance is the thing that is left off the list. And yet, what do we find throughout the Scriptures? Repentance is preached all over the place. Peter preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. Jesus, we're told early in his ministry, went on a repentance-preaching tour. John the Baptist preached repentance. All of the prophets preached repentance to, to the people, to turn from sin. When Paul was preaching in Greece and Athens, he preached that God commands all men everywhere, doesn't matter where you're from or what your name is, he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. The correct response to the reality of your sin is to repent of it. To see that it is indeed sinful, that you are guilty before God's righteous standard, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, including you. To agree with God's verdict. To no longer hide or pretend things are otherwise. To agree that you stand guilty before the holy God who has created all things. And with repentance we are also called to faith. It is not an abstract faith in the way the world uses it. Just have faith. Faith has an object, and the object of our faith is to be the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for sinners. It is because we are all, you and I and all through history, all today, have sinned, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, this is why God the Father has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. This is why Jesus came. This is why the eternal Son of God took to Himself a human form, human flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, and came to live amongst sinful men. He came to live and to earn a righteousness that you do not have. We, have, we are negative in terms of our bank of righteousness. We have much unrighteousness, no righteousness. It is our best righteousness, Isaiah tells us, is what? Filthy rags. We have none. Jesus came to earn righteousness that we do not have. Moreover, He came not only to do that, but also to then on the cross take the sins of His people upon Himself and die to bear the penalty that sinners deserve by on the cross taking that sin, having them placed upon Him, and suffering the wrath of God poured out upon Him. This is what Jesus is marching towards in Luke chapter 22. As men are raging against the Son here, Jesus, God is yet at work in this mysteriously, bringing Jesus to the cross that He might pour out His wrath upon the Son and the Son might drink down His wrath and make propitiation for the sins of His people. Jesus the Son comes willingly to do this. Father, the Father sends Jesus lovingly to accomplish this mission. Jesus dies for sinners. He is buried. He rose again from the dead. He will come from... He's currently at the Father's right hand. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. He intercedes for His people. And He will return one day to judge the living and the dead. And, and again, Paul tells us in Acts 17, in light of this reality, God calls all men everywhere, men and women, children, repent and believe in Christ Jesus. Turn from your sin. 
Acknowledge that you are sinful before God. And your sin will be laid upon the Son, Jesus. He will pay the penalty you deserve. His righteousness will be then credited to your account. And this, God says, is a gift of His grace. You have nothing to offer God. You have nothing to give Him. You have but to recognize your sin before Him, to confess it to Him as sinful, to repent of that sin, and to see Jesus as the the one that you need, the one who your faith needs to be in, forsaking your own righteousness, your own attempts to gain righteousness, to be good enough, I can't do it, to see I need Jesus to pay my penalty and to give me a righteousness I do not have. And God says He gives this to all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a gift of His grace. And so if, you've, if you have not done this, let this be the day, the moment you do that, that you would confess this before God, acknowledge your sinfulness, and look to Jesus Christ, your only hope of salvation, your only hope of forgiveness, your only hope of righteousness. And if you have believed in this, this is your boast, this is your hope, then rejoice in this. Rejoice in God's great mercy. This is not only a story that reveals to us our weakness, but a story that reminds us of the amazing mercy and grace of God. Consider the awful, horrendous nature of Peter's sins. And yet, does the Lord Jesus not forgive him and restore him? He does. He does. And so as you continue on trusting in Jesus Christ and you seek to live a life bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, see that even Peter was forgiven this great sin. And as you battle with your sin, be reminded even now that God is merciful to those who are trusting in His Son and that the greatness of His sacrifice covers even your sins of today and your sins that you've not yet committed tomorrow. This is your hope. This has to be your boast. And so rejoice in God's mercy to you in Christ Jesus. In light of Peter's spectacular failure, recorded for the ages in the Scriptures, I want to close with his opening in his epistle known as 1 Peter. And ask yourself if the mercy of God and God's power to keep him through his weakness and sin was of comfort to this man. I, just, I think we know the answer, but hear what he writes in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Indeed, as we identify with Peter in his sin and misery, let us also hold fast to the good news that Peter preached, that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. There is mercy, that same mercy that this weak and sinful man experienced 
is extended to all who repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, this same mercy that Peter experienced is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are like Peter in so many ways. We have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We have sinned not only in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and all of this is exposed before your eyes. Father, this is, this is bad news, but there is good news that you have made a way, that you have sent Jesus in your love to die for sinners. And there is forgiveness of sins in his name. And you show yourself merciful to those in Christ Jesus. And so we do praise you. We do thank you. We have no other hope. This is our confession. Father, I pray that each person here would make this their boast. That everyone here would acknowledge their sin before you and their guilt before you and, and, and find refuge in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that this would be an encouragement to all here, that all who are trusting would find strength even in their ongoing battle with sin to know your greatness, to know the greatness of your mercy, to see it evident in the fact that you are merciful to men like Peter, you are merciful to someone like David, you are merciful to a man like Paul, and you too are merciful to sinners like us. And so we praise you and thank you In Jesus' name, amen.